If you've got a Bible, you can go ahead and find Acts chapter 8. Uh, if you weren't here last week, we talked a little bit about a really beautiful pivot point in the history of the church that happens in Acts chapter 7 and Acts chapter 8. And what we went over is this idea that in Acts 7 and 8, the transition from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria and then the ends of the earth really happens in the midst of a lot of pushback and turmoil and even persecution. And the big idea that we talked about last week is that the movement of God or the mission of God is a transcultural movement. It's not an American movement or a white movement or a black movement or a Latino movement. It's not a rich movement or a poor movement or a European movement or a South American movement. What's so breathtaking about the gospel is that what Jesus has done to build his church by the grace of God is transcultural. It has the power to engage and to answer the questions that every single nation and every single tribe have that only Christ can answer. And what we looked at last week was that 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 transition point, that pivot to send the church into the nations came out of persecution that was in response to a sermon a guy named Stephen gave. And Stephen basically stood up and here's what he said to remind you of last week. Like he reminded the people of Israel that God is not limited to particular ethnic groups or places, that the God that created everything out of nothing actually saved Abraham, the father of faith, when he was a pagan living in a pagan land. And then God worked to bring redemption and hope to Joseph and his family when they were slaves in the land of Egypt and all the pantheon of Egypt's gods. And then we looked at the fact that God actually met Moses in the wilderness and declared the place that he met Moses holy ground, not because it was a temple or a church building, but because God was there. And then we talked about the fact that Solomon and David, two kings of Israel who had the vision and the dream to build a place for people to worship in Jerusalem, that even as they did that, God clarified for them that though the temple was good, God can't be contained by buildings. And in fact, any place where his people are is the place of God's address on planet earth. Now, that led to massive persecution. They killed Stephen, and the Christians got scattered all over the place. And so that transition from the city of Jerusalem to reach nations and tribes and other people group, it begins in Acts 8, and we see the means of that mission spreading. And that's what we're going to talk about today. How does the great news of Jesus his life, his death, and his resurrection. How does the adoption that's possible in Christ come to people all over this planet? And the answer to that is that the gospel is news that has to be told to people. It is a message. It's not advice in which we tell people seven or eight things they could do to have a better life or a cleaner life or a more fruitful and effective life. The gospel's not advice, it's news. And the way that the great news of the gospel about something that God did in history that changes everything gets spread is by people that are willing to be witnesses for Jesus. And what happens in Acts chapter 8 that's just so beautiful and so freeing for all different types of people and all different giftings of people is that people share the gospel in Acts 8 in two way different ways. Two radically different formats are formats for sharing our faith And one of those formats may be really limited to just a few of us, but the other format for sharing our faith is something that every single follower of Jesus is invited to participate in the joy of. So here's what we're talking about. Look at verse four. Now, those who were scattered went about preaching the word. 
preaching the word or heralding the gospel or sharing the news of what Jesus did through his life, death, and resurrection. Now, here's what's awesome about this. When it says those who were scattered, it's including two groups of people within the early church. They're not distinct groups per se, but there's two different kinds of people within this scattering that spreads the gospel. There were leaders and there were just regular Christians. So part of those folks that got scattered were really gifted preachers like this guy Philip we're about to study, who actually got to preach the gospel in more traditional formats of gathering together crowds of people and screaming at the top of their lungs so people in the back of the crowd could hear and putting together a sermon about how God redeemed his people by grace in Jesus. But it wasn't just leaders that got scattered and preached the word, it was regular people. It was men and women who had to relocate as refugees fleeing Jerusalem in new cities, in new towns. They had to make new friends and find new jobs and find new places to live. And as they engaged in their new cities, here's what happens. They're so overwhelmed by the grace of God in Christ that they begin to share their faith with people in the market and people in their living rooms, and people at their places of employment. And all of a sudden, the news of the gospel starts to gain traction, and more and more people come to faith in Jesus, and the mission and the movement spreads. And what's so awesome about this is the mission and the movement spreads through preaching evangelism and personal evangelism in Acts 8, and it spreads to two radically different people groups. Take your Bible. Let me show you the first way it spreads. Look at verse 5. Now Philip went down to the city of Samaria and he proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and they saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits came out with a loud voice and they came out of many who had them and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed so that there was much joy in that city. Here's what happens in this first context. The Samaritans were hated by the Jews and the Jews were hated by the Samaritans. The Jews didn't want anything to do with these Samaritans because they considered them to be half-breeds, both ethnically and with their mixture of beliefs. So they were part Jew, they were part Gentile, and they had this really weird gumbo of religion that they had cooked up that looked a little bit like Judaism and a little bit like occult practices and a little bit like beliefs of other nations and just some ingredients that they invented on their own. And so the Jews wanted nothing to do with them, but from the very beginning of the gospel, when God told Abraham he would be the father of many nations and he would have an offspring that blessed the world, God always dreamed of reaching these folks. So what happens? Well, this guy named Philip, who's a deacon in the church, a leader in the local church, he shows up into this region of Samaria and he actually goes to the main city of Samaria and all of a sudden, God the Holy Spirit orchestrates these really big crowds of people that gather together, probably in open places or in places of discussion and all of a sudden, Philip stands up and he tells them the news of Jesus and God the Holy Spirit starts demonstrating the truth of the gospel by doing awesome miracles, healing people, casting out demons, and a ton of people get saved. Now, here's why we're talking about this. Like, the gospel is news, not advice, and it goes from mouth to ear, and one of the ways it goes from mouth to ear so that God can do something deep in hearts is through the preaching of the word. And we actually wanna have room for this in our church. When we gather together in South OKC, 
And people drive in from Norman and Moore and Midwest City and Dell City and all the surrounding regions. And we get together on Sundays. We're not getting together to share seven points to have a more maximized potential in your life. We're there to actually first and foremost tell people news about what God's already done. And what God's already done is he's made it possible for his enemies to be forgiven, redeemed, and rescued through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And we actually want to have a vision for this kind of evangelism that's fighting for the joy of the city in which we live. Right? Here's what it says. Verse 8, there was much joy in that city. So can you, can you listen to me and hear me say this? Like, we don't want you to bring friends that are not followers of Jesus because we're stressed out about whether or not we're going to make budget as a church. Like, we don't want you to bring friends that are not followers of Jesus into these gatherings because we're really worried about how we're going to fill up chairs or start new services, or we really want to, you know, like, write pastor's books and get on some bestsellers list. The reason we want you to bring friends from your city that don't know Christ is because there's news that's going to be told that's the best news in the whole world, and everybody in our city is fighting for and pursuing joy in something or someone but ultimate joy is only found in a relationship with God through Jesus, right? So here's the deal, man. Like uh, everybody in OKC has their different targets set on what they think is gonna bring joy to them. And some of those targets that we put out there are targets that we aim at good things like marriage or family or career or being really good at the arts that we're a part of or engaging in our neighborhood or working for the good of our city. I would just say those are good things. But the thing that happens again and again throughout scripture and history is that ultimately the depth of joy that every single human being was created to enjoy, the depth of joy, it's a joy that's transcendent, that's more than just having an easy life. The depth of joy that human beings were made for and that we crave like crazy, that we try to pursue with great passion, both with high road pursuits and all kinds of low road pursuits, the ultimate joy that you and I crave is found in God because he's the headwaters of joy. And we actually get to meet him and know him through faith in Jesus. And God has orchestrated that faith in Jesus is impossible apart from hearing the news of Jesus. So the first kind of thing that we want to do as a church is we want to practice this kind of evangelism, not because we want to build a brand or a mega church or just raise a lot of funds and build really big crowds. The reason we want to be passionate about inviting friends and family and coworkers to come with us on Sundays and to come into gospel community in our homes is because we're actually warring for the joy of the cities that God's planted us in. We're fighting for the joy of Shawnee, Oklahoma, and downtown OKC, and Edmond, and South OKC, and the way that we're fighting for joy is by remembering that what people need ultimately is not just more moralistic advice, we need news. We need news of what's already done that we can lay hold of by faith in Jesus. So this kind of evangelism is beautiful, but, but we have to note that there's probably not a ton of us that are going to do this kind of evangelism. 
right? There are some people in our church that do this. And if this is your calling, we'd love to figure out how to help you and develop you and train you. But for the most part, like we're not gonna have huge percentages of those of us that are followers of Jesus at Frontline. They're gonna like find some public space or go to Mesta Park or show up at um, some music festival in Edmond and the crowds are gonna be ready to listen. We're gonna preach the gospel to multitudes of folks. In fact, for some of you, that's like your lowest version of hell would be having to do that. You're like, if if that's what it takes to follow Jesus, I am going to convert to something else because I'm not standing in front of a crowd and preaching to a bunch of people I don't know. So here's what I would say. Not every Christian is called to do this, but this is the calling of some of us and we need to value it and see it as beautiful and we actually all get to participate by inviting folks in to hear the best news in the whole world. Amen? Now, here's where it gets really interesting. That may be a kind of evangelism that not everybody's gonna do, but there's another kind of evangelism in Acts 8 that actually every single follower of Jesus is invited to do not to get God to love him, not to get a gold star, but because God wants to share the joy of expanding his family with his sons and daughters. And that's called personal evangelism. Personal evangelism is not a script or a formula in which you knock on a door of somebody you don't know and start out the conversation with the really creepy and awkward words, do you know what would happen to you if you died tonight? Like that, that's not, if, if I say personal evangelism and that's what you think, I wanna broaden your understanding of personal evangelism to be something way more beautiful, way more rich, and actually way more accessible for every single follower of Jesus. So what we're going to do is we're going to pick up in verse 26 of chapter 8, and I want to show you how Philip does personal evangelism. First of all, Philip is directed by God, not by himself. He's directed by God, not by himself. This is the first thing about personal evangelism that every believer needs. We need to be spirit-led, not self-led. Look at verse 26. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go towards the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went. And there was an Ethiopian eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. And he had come to Jerusalem to worship. Right, something crazy is about to happen in this text. Not only are the Samaritans who are historically considered on the outside of God's people gonna be brought into the very core of God's people by the gospel, but the seeds of the church in Africa are gonna be planted as this black man who has a role in the court of Queen Candace. As he hears the gospel, he's gonna go home to Ethiopia. He's gonna share about Jesus. And this is gonna be the beginning of the movement of Christ on the continent of Africa. And it all starts with Philip, who's just a regular Christian who loves Jesus, being led by the spirit, not led by himself. He hears the voice of God speaking through an angel and that voice says, go, and here's what he does. He obeys. Now, can we just unpack this together for just a second? Um, Probably the majority of us are not gonna hear the audible voice of God in our lifetime, right? Like that can happen, that can happen. Probably the majority of us are not gonna see an angel of the Lord. That would actually be pretty awesome if that happened to you. It would scare you, you would pee your pants and the angel would say what angels always say, don't be afraid, I'm not gonna kill you, right? 
But, but there's not like a huge percentage of us in this church that are gonna hear from angels or hear the audible voice of the Lord. But here's what's so beautiful about being a follower of Jesus. Every single Christian is marked by one of the core realities of life in Christ, which is this. My sheep hear my voice and they follow me. What Jesus invites you into through grace is not just the memorization of a code of conduct that then you have to do on your own. What Jesus invites you into by his grace, mercy, and love is a relationship with the living God in which he wants to speak to you and actually train you to hear the voice of your master who purchased you at a cost that you actually didn't deserve to be purchased at his very life. So to be a Christian is to be one that hears the voice of the master. And when the master speaks, we're not like, hey, I'm too busy. I got other stuff going on. When the master speaks to his people, we're to say, okay. And evangelism starts with this kind of relationship with God in which he talks and we say yes. So here's what I'd like to say. How do we hear his voice? Because that's a question that we get a lot as pastors. Uh, I was talking to some young people in our church around a game of cornhole at S&B like a week ago. And they were like, how do we hear the voice of God? Like I pray and I'm listening and I don't hear him and I just feel like he doesn't talk to me. And they were really frustrated and they were actually wrestling with all kinds of doubt because they weren't hearing God's voice. And what I said to them is what I wanna say to you. Like God speaks in a lot of different beautiful ways. And we're a charismatic church, which doesn't mean that our pastors wear white suits or wanna push people over in prayer times. What it means to be truly charismatic is that we really love God the Holy Spirit. And we believe that to be a Christian is to be filled by God the Holy Spirit. And we believe that God the Holy Spirit is the one that leads and guides and gifts Christians for the work of ministry and trains us to hear the voice of the Lord. Now hear me, the way he trains us to know what his voice sounds like is through this awesome book that he gave us, which is God's disclosure of who he is to us. So he actually wants you to figure out what he sounds like by meeting with him and hearing from him in this book. He wants to train the ears of your heart and the ears of your soul because he wants you to rely on him and the way he trains the ears of your heart and soul is by you meeting with him and reading this book because this shows you what he's like. So here's what I don't mean when I talk about hearing the voice of God. I don't mean that the Bible is like your magic eight ball, right? It's not your magic, it's not a Ouija board. It's not how you roll the bones to get an answer from God. Like it's not that we approach the Bible thinking this is the roadmap for my life. So should I work at Devon or Chesapeake? And then you get totally weird advice taken out of context and you're trying to figure out how does Leviticus have to do with where I'm supposed to go to college or who I'm supposed to marry. The Bible is not first and foremost a roadmap to your life. The Bible is first and foremost God's disclosure of himself in Christ. And you start to figure out what he's like and what he sounds like and what he cares about and what he loves and what he hates. And as you read it and study it, he starts to train your voice to hear him. Like in addition to that, what we don't want to be is a people that elevate the experiential and subjective above actual the authoritative word of God. 
See, we, we've got a lot of people in our church that are like, hey man, I was outside thinking about who I was supposed to marry and I was meditating on it and the wind blew and a wind chime went off and a bird landed on a limb and I know that it's Sally, she's the one. And I'm like, dude, you know, there's, some few, there's just a few problems with that. <laughs> Problem one is she's not even a believer, right? Problem two is you don't even have a job. You don't need a pet, let alone a wife right now. And problem three is, track with me, whatever we hear experientially, and by the way, I love the experiential. I love it when the Holy Spirit moves and he speaks and he leads, and I love it when he helps me to feel the love of God. I love those moments. But anything we think we're hearing individually and experientially, every Christian is called to test with the authoritative word of God. So if this angel of the Lord hypothetically said to Philip, hey, I want you to divorce your wife and move to Canada and start over and become really famous and rich. Like Philip could have said, does that sound like the voice of God? No, it really doesn't. Does that fit with what he's revealed in his word? No, it really doesn't. See, we want to test what we're hearing with the scripture. So here's the first thing. We're never going to be people that care about the souls of folks in our city and fight for their joy if we don't learn to hear the voice of our Father in the word and through the power of the Holy Spirit. And sometimes, sometimes, listen to me, sometimes what he's going to say to you is going to be super experiential and beautiful in the moment. Sometimes you're going to be at the grocery store and God the Holy Spirit is going to point out a person and he's going to encourage you to go talk to them and engage them. And that may be totally out of your comfort zone. It might freak you out. And one of the reasons we want to study the scriptures so we can say, hey, does this actually sound like God or did I just eat like bad pizza last night? See, we want to be directed by him because when we're directed by him, he will direct you to people that are hurting and far from him. Right, secondly, here's what Philip does in addition to that. Philip not only is directed by God, but I love this. Philip has an appointment set up by the living God. The living God is orchestrating two lives and timelines to meet in the middle so that God's grace can be poured out. Look what happens in verse 27. And he rose and went. And there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure, and he had come to Jerusalem to worship. So can you just think for a second, don't flatten out scripture and make it less amazing than what it is. Can you just think for a second of how unlikely and crazy this encounter really is, right? Here's a dude that was raised in Ethiopia. Somehow he heard of the God of Israel, He was drawn by the Spirit of God to actually travel to Jerusalem. He's way far away from his home, and that moment of him leaving Jerusalem is at a point in his personal history that actually had thousands of events that had to unfold to get him there. And here's Philip who has a personal history, Philip who has a past, and his timeline and this eunuch's timeline, they're converging in the desert. They're about to meet in the desert because God's pulling off an appointment for the good of this Ethiopian and for the good of his nation and his continent. Here's what's so awesome about this. That's not just for a couple Christians. The sovereign God of the universe planted you where he planted you, 
He helped you get the job that you have. He's actually the one that's been working in your timeline to put you in your neighborhood, to get you in your circle of friends, to place you in the part of the city that you live. And he did that because he wants to bring into your life multiple divine appointments where you get to be this beautiful witness to the grace of God so that lives can be changed. And what's so cool about this is this makes Monday mornings way more exciting than not understanding this. Like the living God wants to orchestrate divine appointments for you this week so that his mercy and his love and his care can be brought into the lives of people that are far from him and hurting. And that's crazy that we get to be a part of that. So he has this divine appointment with this Ethiopian eunuch. And I would just say this, there are people in your circle, in your neighborhood, in your class, in your place of employment that God wants to bring into your life so that you can love them and serve them and meet needs and so that you can witness to the saving power of Jesus by telling them news, not just advice, right? So think for just a second about how many of us in this room You have this timeline in history and in a really dark moment of your life, a really painful moment, God brought somebody into your life as a divine appointment that actually loved you and heard you and told you about Jesus. How many of us, that's our story. We were at the end of our rope. Anxiety was winning the day. Addiction was winning the day. Hopelessness was winning the day. And all of a sudden, some random person shows up in your life in high school or college or during a messy divorce, and they love you and cry with you and talk with you. And all of a sudden, you get rooted and grounded in the grace of God that changes your life and your eternity forever. That's awesome. You get to be a part of that. That's what it is to follow God. It's to be a part of his family and his mission. And he's constantly wanting to work this kind of thing out in your life. So let let me put it to you like this. If this week, all of a sudden, um, you meet somebody and your heart goes out to them and you feel burden and love and concern for them, or during the week you're working at your place of employment and all of a sudden you think of a name of a person that's in your neighborhood or a family member and you're concerned about them, or all of a sudden your heart just goes out to a person in your circle of influence or in one of your relationship spheres and, and your heart actually aches for them, can I just say, don't give yourself credit for that. You're not that good a person. If that happens to you this week, That's God the Holy Spirit speaking to you and leading you like he led Philip into this relationship with this Ethiopian eunuch. So thirdly, um, he's directed by the Spirit of God. He has this divine appointment set up by the Spirit of God. And then the third thing about evangelism, personal evangelism, is that the Spirit of God is the one that does all the hard work. So this takes the pressure off. It's the spirit of God that does the heavy lifting, not you and me. Let, me. let me show you what I mean in the text. Three things. First of all, the spirit of God is working before you even show up to talk to the person. Look at verse 28. This eunuch was returning, seated in his chariot, and he was doing what? Reading the prophet Isaiah. Okay, how awesome is it that God the Holy Spirit orchestrated the events of this man's life so that he would actually have one of the most Christ-centered, clear proclamations of what the Messiah was gonna do ever written, even though it was written 640-ish years before this guy was born. 
So here's this guy, he's reading this document, he has no idea what it means, but God the Holy Spirit is the one that got it into his hands, that drew him to Jerusalem, that's been working in his story to prepare him for this moment. And I just wanna hear, I just want you to hear me say, God's working in people's lives before you get there. So it's not like you gotta put the pressure on you of I'm stepping in with all the hope and all the life and all the light. When I show up, it's like we as Christians sometimes think that evangelistically we have to be like Alan Iverson. You, you remember when he got the tattoo that says the answer, right? You're not Alan Iverson. You don't have to be Alan Iverson. You're not the answer Jesus is. And what's so encouraging and freeing is to realize that before you step into that situation or that appointment or that meeting or that relationship, God was there way before you showed up, leading and guiding. And so you may show up and plant a seed or you may show up and actually that person's ready to talk about Jesus or you may show up and that person has questions that their circumstances have brought them to. God was there before you got there. And that takes tons of pressure off. Secondly, the spirit of God does the heavy lifting by being the one that actually changes hearts and changes minds on his own timetable. This eunuch is about to be converted. He's about to love Jesus. He's about to help plant a church in Ethiopia that's gonna help change the world. And it's not Philip that talks him into that, right? Philip gets to share the gospel with him. But the Bible says really clearly that one of the greatest miracles God can possibly do is take a human heart that's dead and cold to God and call that human heart into life and love for God in Jesus. You can't do that. I can't do that. And what that means is a person may actually put their faith in Jesus the first time they hear the gospel or the 500,000th time they hear the gospel. And that means it's not your job to debate and convince. It's your job to share the truth of Jesus, the news of what he did. So I think like some of us, we get so stressed out that we've got to have the right technique or we've got to be smarter than the person that we're talking to or that we have to debate them in or like, you know, I love apologetics. Apologetics are super helpful in sharing our faith with people, but some of us start to feel this pressure that we've got to be like apologetical ninjas. You got to beat somebody with Lee Strobel's case for faith until they just tap out and say, okay, I'll follow Jesus. And I want to take the pressure off of you you don't talk anybody into following Jesus. You don't change anybody's hearts. You don't convince them. You point to Christ and bear witness to the good news of the gospel and God the Holy Spirit might in that moment do the miracle of new birth or that might be a seed that he's gonna bring a harvest out of when that person's 89 years old. You can share and take the pressure off of the results. The results are on him, right? So you can breathe. You can breathe. You don't have to be brilliant. You have to be willing, willing to point to Christ and tell people what he's done. This leads us to the fourth thing. Fourth thing. So um, Philip has a part to play, even though the spirit of God does the heavy lifting. And Philip's part to play is the same part that we get to play in sharing our faith with other people. It's three things. First of all, Philip is willing to go. He's willing to go. Look at verse 30. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, do you understand what you're reading? The the thing that jumps off the page to me and one of the most convicting things in this story is that Philip is a busy guy. He's preaching the gospel all over the place. And yet when God directs him to go and engage one individual person in the middle of the desert, God says, go, Philip runs. He runs. 
And what this really is, is the overflow of the love of God that's yours in Jesus that leads you to want to go to neighbor and go to coworker so that they can experience the joy of Christ that you've experienced. God says go, Philip runs. And I'll just be super honest with you. Um, I'm so awkward one-on-one. Like, I feel so much more comfortable talking to hundreds of people and thousands of people. Uh, Opportunities I've had to preach the gospel to hundreds, if not thousands of non-Christians. Yeah, that freaks me out a little bit, but not like a a coffee appointment with somebody I don't know. Like just honestly, like that freaks me out. One-on-one, I start stuttering. My brain gets all fuzzy. I feel awkward and sweaty and weird. And I know I'm about to say dumb stuff. And I'll just say that because of that, sometimes when God starts bringing people into my life that he's called me to share the gospel with, sometimes instead of running towards them, I drag my feet because I'm busy doing other stuff, right? Sometimes non-Christian friends will call me, want to hang out, grab something to eat, get a cup of coffee, talk, converse, spend time together. And instead of Philip's reaction of, oh my gosh, this is an opportunity to love somebody and share the gospel, I look at my insufficiency and my calendar and I actually shrink back from it. What I want so badly is for you and me to learn when God says go, let's go. Let's run. Let's know our neighbors. Let's know people in our city that are far from God. Second thing that's Philip's part is he runs when God says go. Secondly, Philip's willing to sit with this guy. And this is one of my favorite parts of the story. Philip's willing to sit with this guy. Look at verse 31. This eunuch says to him, how can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. I love this. I I can imagine what this would have looked like. Here's this little Jewish man named Philip. And here's this this dark-skinned Ethiopian, probably in really expensive clothes with like a royal air about him. This is an important guy, an educated guy, a brilliant guy. They could not be from more different cultures on planet Earth. But here's what's so awesome. This guy says, hey, why don't you sit by me and explain the good news of this text so I get it? And Philip's like, I would love to sit with you. See, this is a picture of how our God is relational, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, one God in three persons. That's the depth of relationship that's the ultimate framework for all deep relationships. Father loves the Son, the Son loves the Father, the Spirit loves the Son, the Son loves the Spirit. It's this beautiful community. And the good news of Jesus is this awesome news that that God who's one God in three persons wants to be in relationship with people. So here's what I'm getting at. If God's that relational and the end game of the gospel is to bring us back into relationship, why would you be surprised that the means of sharing the gospel is also going to be relational? People are not projects. And what we don't want to do is start reducing people to projects or getting stoked about evangelism in a way that starts to act like people are notches on our evangelistic belt. What we want to do is realize that people are people, not problems or projects. And that they're worthy of your time. They're worthy of sitting with. They're worthy of getting to know. They're worthy of asking questions of. They're worthy of hearing their story. And that's the context in which we then get to open our mouths and point to the sufficiency of Christ's life and his death and his resurrection for sinful people. So here's what I would say under this idea. If you're a Christian and you've just woken up in the last month and realized that you don't know anybody that's far from God, like everybody you know is a Christian, 
First of all, I relate to that. That's a danger in my line of work because I can wake up and realize not only do I only know Christians, but I only know Christian church planters who lead leaders. But every single follower of Jesus is called to be salt and light, which means we have to actually have friendship and relationship with people that are far from God that we're actually pointing back to Jesus. So I don't, I don't know what this is going to look like for you. If you don't know anybody that doesn't know Jesus, I would say, you got to figure this out. We got to talk to our neighbors or join PTA or instead of wanting the church to have more and more programs that pull us out of the city, maybe together we could fight for having a simplicity of the way that we do rhythms as a church so that you have time to play basketball at the YMCA on a Friday afternoon or so that you have time instead of doing another men's Bible study or another women's Bible study to actually go hunting with a bunch of guys that don't know Jesus. Right? Or, or to go fishing, or to work out, or to hang out at a restaurant. Like We are called to be salt and light, which means we've got to know people that haven't tasted the sweetness of Christ and haven't seen his light. Right? So Philip runs when God sends him. Philip sits with this guy in relationship. And then finally, last idea, Philip shares Jesus from the Bible. This is so beautiful. Look at verse 32. Now, the passage of scripture that this man was reading was this. This is from Isaiah 53. It's this beautiful prophecy about Jesus written almost 700 years before the birth of Jesus. And here's what it says. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter. Like a lamb before his shears is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, about whom I ask you, does this prophet say this? About himself or somebody else? Verse 35, then Philip opened his mouth and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. Relationship is so important. Running when God sends us is so important. Divine appointments are so important, but evangelism eventually boils down to sharing from scripture the good news about Jesus. And what I would say about this that's so, I think, helpful and freeing is that you don't have to be where Philip was at, where he was actually ready to start with the book of Isaiah, an Old Testament book of the Bible, and preach Jesus from Isaiah all the way through the rest of the Old Testament. You, you might not be ready to do that. You might read Leviticus, and you've heard me say the whole Bible's about Jesus, and you're like, I have no idea how that book is about Jesus. All right, I'll take your word for it, but I just don't see it. You may not be there yet, but listen to me. Even if you only know one verse, one verse, and you know what the gospel's done for you, you're not disqualified. What if the only verse you know is, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believed in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. And in your own story, though you still have problems and difficulties in sin, you've experienced the joy of being dead and then being made alive. You've experienced redemption and help, peace and grace. You've seen God's mercy in the power of the gospel. If that's all you know, you know enough to be a part of sharing your faith with other people. Now, don't stay there. Like, it's awesome and beautiful to be able to meet people with whatever their questions are and point back to Jesus based on their questions. For this guy, his question was about Isaiah 53. For your friends, it may be questions about divorce or depression, or anxiety, or addiction, or why the world's so messed up. 
And it would be really great to be able to do what Philip did and open scripture and talk to them about Jesus from the Bible. That's what we all want to do as Christians. But don't put it up so high that it's out of reach for you to be a part of it, right? If you know one verse in your story, you're called to participate in evangelizing people that are far from God,